This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. The memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red flood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, a winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Brucott to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans, from CU at the Game. This is Stuart Whitehair, publisher and editor for the See at the Game website and your host for the See at the Game podcast. I will be joined in a moment by Brad Geiger and Neil Langland, and we have plenty to discuss. First, we'll take a look back at CU's final game in the 2021 season, a 28-13 loss to number 16 Utah. We will then reflect on CU's 4-8 record and how the season played out compared to our thoughts about the Buffs and their opponents back in August. After some reflections, though, it's time to look ahead. To the surprise of probably no one, offensive coordinator Darren Cheverini was fired two days after the Utah game. Speculation is already rampant as to potential replacement candidates, and we'll discuss a few of the names being bandied about, as well as the financial restraints CU faces when it comes to hiring big-name assistant coaches. That would be plenty of fodder for a podcast, but in the past week, not one, not two, but all three of the current Pac-12 coaching vacancies were filled, with the headliner, of course, being the hiring by USC of now former Oklahoma coach Lincoln Riley. The move sent shockwaves across the nationwide landscape of college football. We'll talk about what the hires by USC and the Washington schools mean to the Pac-12 in general, and to CU in particular. As we are now heading into the offseason, It is even more important for you to subscribe to the podcast wherever you download your podcasts. We'll be coming back to you every few weeks, but the schedule will be a little more fluid. For example, look for the next podcast on December 16th, the day after signing day. Yes, signing day is only two weeks away. Will CU be able to build some momentum after posting two November upsets? Will Carl Durrell be able to find a new offensive coordinator who will get the Buffs back to a bowl game in 2022? Let's find out. Okay, we are back. And the Colorado regular season is over, and yet there's plenty to talk about. So welcome. Brad's back, and Highlands Ranch is represented. How's Brad doing this evening? Glad to be here, still recovering from a lot of turkey on Thursday, and uh, of course, got a few opinions to express. 
<laughs> okay, well, first let's introduce one Neil Langlin looking down upon the peons of Larimer Square. How's Neil doing this evening? I'm doing fine. You know, down here in the concrete canyons, sometimes it makes me long for the uh, days in Boulder, Chautauqua Park, and the Mount, all of that. So, but I'm getting by. And I'm anxious to see what you guys have to say, you know, about this rather dull Monday in college football. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to have to back up three days to Friday. Colorado played at Salt Lake City, uh, number 16, Utah 28, Colorado 13. Impressions, Brad, 24-point uh, underdogs going into the game. So lost by 15. So it must have been a good game, right? It was a less bad game than we feared. I mean, I truly thought that Utah, particularly offensively, could name their score. And like has happened so many times this year, we can't put together an entire game. Um, The last two games, defense makes some plays, is able to particularly force turnovers. It made a big difference in the game, but the offense wasn't able to take advantage of it. In the end, giving up 28, considering what Utah had done to Oregon the week before. No, it didn't feel like a win. It didn't feel like a good game, but it did feel like a team that at least continued to want to play on the last game of the season. We've not always seen that. So I wasn't optimistic, but it was a better game than I feared. Neil, you concur. I mean, uh, it didn't look like there was any rational math that would have see you having a chance in this game, and yet it was competitive well into the second half. Well, from last week, um, I forecast that there would be 40 points on the board by Utah by middle third quarter. I was just a wee bit off on that. And I ascribe that to CU playing much better, as Brad said, than we thought they would. And possibly Utah just having this notion of let's just get by here, okay? Let's not break a sweat. Let's not get anybody hurt. Now we'll score enough and we'll let our defense just strangle the impotent CU offense. I thought the tone for the game, maybe this is pushing it a little bit, was set very early on. CU gets a break. They make a break with a great interception, a great defensive play. I had, okay, well, we've got a chance here. And they go backwards on offense and kick a field goal. I thought, well, that's going to be the game. We'll get a break in there or make a good play, but we won't capitalize on it. Happened again in the second half with a kickoff return. And then what happens next series? It's nullified by that Utah drive, 21-14. And I thought from there in, CU's offense was not going to get anything done. So the game was over at that point. Yeah, Brad, 148 yards of total offense. Yet another game under 200 yards of total offense, nine first downs. The defense gave up 444 yards. Didn't feel like it was that bad. And if you look at the injury report, half of every linebacker that played for the University of Colorado during the season was out injured for this game. And you're playing against a team that runs the ball and throws to their tight ends or leading two receivers or both tight ends. So even though they gave up 444 yards of total offense, it did seem like the defense like you say, gave the Buffs a chance to to win. Do you, do you concur with Neil that Utah was just playing too conservative? It seemed like the fact that the game was still in doubt in the second half, if they wanted to run away, they probably should have done it a little earlier. 
Yeah. I think uh, maybe not conservative, low energy probably is their best. I mean, we were sandwiched between games against Oregon. They were going to look back and they were going to look ahead. And so I, I don't think anybody would say that was the best version, particularly of the Utah offense. But over the last couple of weeks, the defensive line had played better, which I think is the biggest difference. And so that kept it from getting nearly as ugly as it could have been. It was quite clear that when Utah knew that they needed to win, they could put together what they needed to do. But it was, I think they struggled in ways that surprised them and that surprised me. So there's a lot to write about the defense. And as incompetent as the offense was, they weren't, it wasn't for lack of effort. They didn't seem to give up. Uh, Lewis continues to try to make plays. Again, it's a loss. You can't take anything else away from that. But it's a team that showed up in Utah with nothing to play for and still play. Yeah. Well, would you give that to him, Neil? The, I you agree with you. I mean, I was certainly of the crowd when Mark Perry had his 40-yard interception return on the first drive of the game. If it had gone 55 yards, there might have been a chance for CU in this game. But the fact that he got stopped at the 15-yard line, it was just like, in the Washington game the week before where there was a turnover at the seven yard line and Colorado couldn't punch it in three plays, zero yards. Yes. It was a field goal. Yes. You took the lead that they held until the second quarter. But when you're a 24 point underdog on the road, you tend to have to take advantage of all those types of opportunities and the bus just couldn't find a way to get that done. Yeah, I think that's right. When you're, when there's such a wide gap in talent and capability, any little break that the other team may give you, and you'll get some every game, you've got to take advantage of those. And on big turnovers or big turns like that, absolutely have to capitalize to the max on each of those. That was CU's really only chance really was that in special teams. And, you know, just like it was against Washington, you know, with the fumbles to Brad's comment about, how CU fought. I thought that our quarterback was really a symbol for the entire team in that he would get punished. He would get hit hard. He would just get pounded and he would gather himself and come back for more. And that, that showed the heart I think that he has and that the entire team displayed for that entire game. And if there's any takeaway is that, and I know that's been put in columns and such in the past few days, but CU seems to be a different team psychologically this point of the season and relative to last season as well. And that's a good thing. That, that was a nice positive to take away, I think. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about the, the season in general. I think the over-under was like four and a half wins at uh, Vegas at the beginning of the season, maybe even three and a half wins. So Vegas pretty much had CU figured out, ends up with a four and eight record. I want to talk about half of the season. We're going to take a couple of games off the table here. Two games that you figured CU was going to win. Everybody figured, you know, Northern Colorado, Arizona. Arizona was coming in the season. Of, well, at that point, I think it was 12 game losing streak. And we're playing them at home. If we we're going to beat anybody, we're going to beat Arizona and Northern Colorado. I think there were four losses pegged in there pretty easily at Oregon, at Utah, Texas A&M and Denver and USC, which Colorado has yet to beat in, well, in anyone's lifetime. So that's a two and four 
pretty much given from the start. So I'm going to talk about the other six games because CU needed to go four and two in those games to make it to six and six, make it to a bowl game, which I think was kind of our hope four months ago. And the games we're talking about would be at Arizona State, which was a top 25 team to start the season, but there was the feeling that with the investigations, everything, and well, CU was 2-0 and against Herm Edwards, so had to give the Buffs a chance in that one. At UCLA, as it turns out, an 8-4 team, but it was a December, I'm sorry, a November game, and at the time we thought Chip Kelly might be fired by then and that UCLA might be in disarray. At Cal, not really a road game because they only have 20,000 people in the stands, but Colorado only has four wins in history in the state of California. So going at UCLA and at Cal was kind of going against the tide. Minnesota at home, Oregon State at home, Washington at home. Probably at the time, Washington was a top 25 team. Minnesota and Oregon State seemed to be the two wins that were possible there. And of course, the Minnesota game turned out to be a disaster. So is it a realistic end of the season, considering how the record was and seeing how the rest of the schedule and the teams we played, played their season? Well, I think looking back, I think really the only game that looking back is a, is a massive disappointment in terms of what we could have done. I don't, still don't understand how we lost that badly to Cal. That was a very inconsistent Cal team who lost Arizona, albeit COVID decimated. I mean, that's the game where we just did not show up. Um, Minnesota t- turned out to be better than we thought. Arizona State turned out to be better than we thought. UCLA turned out to be better than we thought. And now better against better teams. I mean, you know, Minnesota is not a great team, but they're third in the Big Ten in their division. They're more than competent. But, uh, you know, looking back, we could have played better against Cal. I think that's probably the one that that really did get away. So I don't remember what I picked at the beginning of the season, but uh, four wins is a slight disappointment. Five would have been about what I expected. So given the struggles at the offensive line and consequently the quarterback had at the beginning of the season, yeah, after uh, after the Minnesota game, we wouldn't have picked this team to win four. Yeah, yeah, it was really looking pretty ugly there. I mean, the week before, after the ten to seven loss to A and M, we thought might be on to something, and a week later, it started to unravel. So, Neil, the Buffs played half the season without their All American candidate Nate Landman. We made the excuse. We definitely, I'm included in that. That Colorado's last six quarters of the 2020 season was largely attributable to the loss of Nate Landman. The Buffs did probably about as well as they could have with Nate Landman in the lineup in the last six games without him in the lineup. Is there anything that uh, could have been a turning point, could have done better than four and eight, should have done better than four and eight, or were we lucky to get to four and eight? You know, Vegas had us right in the aggregate. I don't think they picked necessarily – their model picked the games that CU was going to win and lose. Um, I think there were some some games like Cal that CU had every chance of winning. And Minnesota, from what we knew of them at the time, had a chance to win. I think I said in earlier podcasts that I thought that the AM game was a turning point, at least for the first part of the season. And I think CU had a golden opportunity and let it slip away. 
And I think that kept the Buffs from progressing for the next two or three games. I would have taken the over. I would have thought that CU was going to get to five wins and probably go into the last three games at uh, four and five and have a chance perhaps even at bowl eligibility. But there are position groups that I overestimated, even though I was somewhat pessimistic about the O-line. They turned out to be so much worse than I thought because I was extrapolating from last year where they were decent. And they just cratered. They were awful. I'm sorry. I mean, those guys are much better athletes than I ever dreamed of being, but they just didn't play up to standard for a power five team. The quarterbacking, we expected to be better, and it was much worse. So I overestimated how good they were going to be. So I would say that I missed. I I was overly optimistic about how the Buffs would do. Yeah, I think... Well drank the black and gold Kool-Aid during the offseason, hoping that a four and two Alamo Bowl team would at least be a 500 team in 2021. Even with the schedule as it turned out, there were a lot of winning records and a lot of bowl teams as we look back at the history of the, of the season that uh, Colorado didn't measure up against. They won win against a team that had a winning record, and that was Oregon State. And mm-hmm. It just didn't turn out that as well as we might have hoped. And historically bad offense, the worst production since 1964 in terms of yards per game, led to what had to be the inevitable firing of Darren Cheverini. I don't think anyone would logically make an argument that he should have been retained based upon the results. So... Brad, not surprised that uh, two days after the final game of the season that the word came out that Darren Cheverini had been relieved of his duties as offensive coordinator. Sometimes the writing is on the wall. Sometimes the wall is made up of writing. Um, (laughs) Where Stuart and I usually sit, uh, that writing has been on the wall for quite some time. No, Darren, Darren's Twitter account didn't really seem either surprised or in disagreement about it. He, uh, he just didn't do it. And that's unfortunate. And I, you know, think he'll continue to coach and I hope he learns from it, but this offense underachieved dramatically. And I, uh, I would hope this is not the last change on that side of the ball. I suspect Carl will pick an offensive coordinator before any other decisions are made, but it, it has to get better because it can't get worse. And some of it was coaching. There's no doubt about that. Even the offensive line, as bad as it was, got slightly better once they fired the offensive line coach. There's just there are flaws on that side of the ball in talent, but there are more flaws on that side of the ball in how it's used. Yeah. Well, Neil, nobody would argue that Darren Cheverini is not a, a buff, bleeding black and gold. In the record books, as a receiver, longtime coach, you know, certainly everyone believes that he is a buff and has no argument with the fact that he would want the buffs to succeed, but didn't seem like there was any chance for him to survive and would have been something better if he had been relieved of duties when the offensive line coach was let go or maybe even further back in the bye week or would have not made any difference in 2021. The Buffs had what they had. 
And the second part to the question would be, there are some that say, well, Cheverini's offense, when he was offensive coordinator under different head coach, was a lot more open. And maybe it's really kind of Carl Durrell's conservatism that's at fault here. And Darren Cheverini is just the fall guy. I'm not, I think there's something to the theory and I have espoused this before it's my safe Harbor that it's a black box and we don't know who really was responsible for the conservatism in the offense. It's probably a shared thing. It could be the friction perhaps that we've theorized between uh, Durrell and Shiverini. That said, in retrospect, I think letting him go a little sooner probably would have given us a read on how an interim OC like Langsdorf or someone else could have done and to get a read on whether it indeed was Cheverini or if it's more Durrell, because I, I'm worried that it's Durrell. This is my worst case scenario, that it's Durrell being conservative and we could hire Gandalf as the next OC and not have it improved. Well, the message boards are, of course, lighting up with all sorts of names. Uh, Most of those names are names that will never come anywhere near the University of Colorado, either because of the situation at the University of Colorado or the dollars in the purse at the University of Colorado. Brad, Brian Howell at the Daily Camera put out some names some names that are familiar to Buff fans, including former offensive line coach Chris Kabilovic, who left with Mel Tucker to head off to Michigan State. Um, he didn't leave Colorado. He got some offers from SEC schools and still stayed at Colorado until he got offered a bunch of dollars to follow Tucker to Michigan State. Uh, Troy Walters, a former Buff, uh, was wide receivers coach under Mike McIntyre as offensive coordinator experience at Nebraska and Central Florida. And, well, there is quarterbacks coach Danny Lansdorf. I think there would be a storming of the Bastille if he was named offensive coordinator, but he does have something like nine years of experience as an offensive coordinator at Oregon State and, wait for it, Nebraska. So from a dollar standpoint in terms of availability and in terms of having an experienced offensive coordinator take over the job. Any of those names or any other names that you've heard or read about that uh, stand out to you as potential candidates to be the next offensive coordinator at the University of Colorado? You know, it is literally impossible for us to know really who's available. I thought the most hilarious one was that Jeff Tedford was going to take the offensive coordinator position at CU, um, or that Carl Durrell was going to hire Jeff Tedford, who would then be replacement coach in waiting. Yeah, the de facto (laughs) next coach, yeah. Yeah, no, that ain't going to happen. We would certainly find out if this is about Carl Durrell or if it's about getting better if he hired Langsdorf. I wouldn't necessarily mind Langsdorf staying on, but I don't think that's going to work. Kavilovic, yeah, he was an interesting guy, but I don't think CU's got the money to hire him. Uh, Walters, I think, is an interesting choice. And if he would be willing to step back into it, obviously, as a as a role to moving on to being a head coach somewhere, he might be an interesting choice. Bengals offense is solid. They've got a young quarterback. If he could be convinced to come back here and do that, 
it could be very interesting. This kind of speculation is about a half step above looking in your crystal ball and a half step below trying to read the stars. Yes. <laughs> well, at this stage of the game, you know, just two days in, not even two full days into the offensive coordinator search, but presumably that's something that's been discussed behind closed doors for more than two days. So, Neil, before we start talking some dollars here, um, any names that we've talked about or any other names that uh, spark your interest in terms of a potential offensive coordinator for CU? I do also. I agree with Brad that Troy Walters, uh, I think, was very popular when he was here with his position group. And he's had some experience. We won't hold the Nebraska stint against him. And he would be an interesting choice. I think he's reputed to be a good recruiter so he's and he may come back assuming that he has enough freedom to run an offense with which he is comfortable the capillavit i think is a twofer in that he would not only if given some freedom reinvigorate the offense but he would also reinvigorate the o-line he was very popular among his players and those kids played for him, and they played better. They seem to be better coached. It's going to take a mill or more probably to get him. I don't know if Rick George would pony up that money. But if you view it yeah. as, I'm getting two coaches for one, then maybe it's not a bad deal. Yeah. Well, speaking of a million dollars, you know, Brad, what we're looking at, the assistant coach pool for this year was $3.4 million, which was the highest it's ever been, but still – pennies compared to other schools are putting out. Now, in addition to that, you're going to be paying Darren Cheverini the third year of his contract. So that's another six hundred, over $600,000. So now you've got to come up with an assistant coach pool of dollars of $4 million just to get someone that you pay as much as you're already paying Darren Cheverini. So to Neil's point, you're going to have to raise million has have to go to like $4.4 million if you want to get yourself a million-dollar coordinator. So is that even realistic, or do we hope that Rick George has been working the phones for the past month, talking to all the big donors and saying, okay, you're complaining about the offensive coordinator position. We need to get a better offensive coordinator. Well, guess how that happens? We pay more to offensive coordinators. Any hope that – See, you'll actually have the dollars to make that work. That's that's a deep concern. You and I met with a moderate scale donor a few weeks ago, and he expressed that concern about whether the money exists. So, you know, I see you, unlike some other schools in California, has a budget for assistance. And that budget in terms of public dollars is limited. I certainly hope so. And I have some faith that Rick George understands that. And I know for certain he has been working the phones to try to make that work. How much he'll come up with, how hard you can shake that tree in this economy at this time, that's a concern. Yeah. So is that CU's destiny, Neil, that we're going to have an underpaid uh, assistant coaching and that's going to lead to lesser results on the field and Colorado is just slipping further and further into the have not category, or is this something where we can get some young guy like a Troy Walters who might not need a million dollars to get the shot at the power five offensive coordinator. Of course he, he already has been 
a power five offensive coordinator, but maybe coming back to Colorado would be an enticement. Are there going to be dollars available or are we just kind of destined to be what we are? I want to ask a question in response to your question. I, I know that's considered rude in some ways, but my, uh, my response is conditioned on it. For the lawyers, is Cheverini's contract contingent upon him? What's the phrase I'm looking for? If he gets a job, yeah, it, it offsets some of his. But yeah. does that job need to be an OC or is it just a college coach? I haven't know? seen the actual contract as to whether or not there's any offset if he obtains another job or if he can just sit home and play solitaire on his computer and, and take in $600,000, $625,000. So My understanding is that that is a common provision in, in, in assistant coaches contracts. I would think it's, it's a re, it's a routine provision, but uh, how much it is or what his possibility is, that would be speculation. Yeah. So the reason I ask is that McIntyre's contract, see, you made a mistake. And it was written into his contract that the mitigation would occur only if McIntyre was a head coach. Right. And I hope they didn't make the same mistake with Shiverini saying he had to be a coordinator. Yeah. If that's the case, then he'll probably want to coach again and start rebuilding his rep. And that might make some funds available. Yeah. And the main point I want to make here is that Rick George, when interviewed recently, said, I understand the fans and the supporters are tired of 15 years of mediocre to bad football. We have to do something. This goes back to Neuheisel getting a job at UW where he said, CU is a have not. At some point, CU needs to make a decision. And I think we're at one of those points now that if we don't pony up some money and don't get a name in here and start turning this around, then we're going to be in the scenario that you described, Stuart, as continuing backsliding. We have to make a stand at some point. If CU is serious about football, it's time to get serious about hiring good, named, competent coaches. Well, I don't think you know Rick George would have any problem with hiring a splash hire at offensive coordinator if somebody walked up to him and said, here's an extra million dollars for your assistant coach pool. So you know, it's not just finding the right person that's being able to to fund it. And I don't know if Colorado has that. And I'm not talking about just institutional. I'm talking about the fan base, that type of commitment, which is a sort of a segue into the rest of the news of the day or the rest of the news of the weekend. The coaching carousel has hit warp speed with Lincoln Riley surprising everyone by turning down LSU. He started to be asked the question about other jobs, and he said, I am not going to be the coach at LSU. So he didn't lie. He just didn't allow them to ask the question. So now he's going to be Mike Bones, head coach at Southern California. Mike Bones said it was never our goal to change the landscape of college football with one of the biggest moves in the history of the game, but we did exactly that. And the internet has just been completely agog with the move and what it means to the Pac-12 and what it means to USC. So, Brad, is it a – I put a poll on the website, the See You at the Game website today. Is it a good thing in the sense that Lincoln Riley brings immediate attention, will probably bring star players – 
and dollars to the Pac-12, or is it a bad thing for the University of Colorado that the sleeping giant, as Mike Bone referred to it today, is going to rise real quickly? We weren't ever going to compete on a yearly basis with USC. I mean, that's the reality. They are paying Lincoln Riley $110 million. That's the contract. So, yes, does this continually emphasize that there are the haves and the have lesses in the Pac-12 and in college football? Of course. Yeah, it's a bad thing. Lincoln Riley is brilliant. He's a good coach, an excellent recruiter. Now, how many more four or five stars you can get to SC? Eventually, there is a scholarship limit of some kind. <laughs> so I understand that 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 pick in the poll. No, I mean, it's not a good thing that the second highest dollar program in the conference went and got the plum football hire of the year. We can't be happy about it. But the richest getting slightly richer is not unexpected. So we have to live with it. Yeah. Well, Neil, you know, it seems like, you know, the, the proverbial rich get richer, that there was going to be some sort of a name hire, whether Luke Fickle, Matt Campbell, Dave Aranda. I mean, you know, USC was not going to do what surprisingly, maybe to some, Washington did by plucking the Fresno State coach, Kalen DeBoer, to be their new head coach. So you have the Oklahoma head coach heading to USC and Washington thinks of itself as a blue blood picking up the Fresno state coach. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, Washington state promotes its interim coach. And I think you could pull 100 CU fans and not get two people to name this guy. Um, Even though he's been an interim head coach for half the year, Jake Dickert, who went three and two, after Rolovich was fired, this guy's 38 years old. I mean, Brad and I were still in college. I don't even want to talk about where you were, but, you know, when this guy was born, <laughs> we were in college. So this guy's just a baby. So the three Pac-12 schools, now there might still be more movement. Maybe Mario Cristobal goes somewhere else. But, you know, at least right now, there are 12 coaches in the Pac-12. What's your reaction to having the Fresno State coach at Washington, interim coach at Washington State, and Lincoln Riley to USC. Well, to Brad's point and invoking Paul Simon, one man's ceiling is another man's floor. Uh, I think we're seeing that phenomenon here in the Pac-12. To Lincoln Riley, he is obviously a man of the world and wide awake. He avoids the SEC mess that's going to befall Oklahoma and Texas when they go there. He also already has a recruiting pipeline to Southern California. He'll probably drag several four and five star guys that were committed to Oklahoma with him. I'd say within a couple of years, he's going to turn that around. And part of that is his name and his reputation and his competence. Obviously, USC already had decent talent. I think we talked about that a few times this year but they were just poorly coached and poorly motivated. They're going to come back quickly, I think. With respect to Washington State, that may be the most economical or cost-efficient hire that they could do because there's not much else out on the market right now. So that could work out very well. This coach seemed like he got that team turned around. I I, I just, I, I think that trying to make a splash hire is going to be a privilege of the few rich 
programs here. Washington certainly could have paid a lot more money and gone after a big name coach, just like Mike Bone did. But for some reason, they I can't understand it why they went with a, a rather unknown coach. So we'll see who's right here. But I think SC, uh, excuse me, that SC made a great deal, not just for themselves, but for the entire conference. Well, certainly brought a lot more attention to the, the Pac-12, at least temporarily. But yeah, you're going to see if they lose to Cal, you know, probably be the only four and eight team that will be nationally ranked come preseason of 2022, because Lincoln Riley's name is just going to automatically bump USC right back. But I agree with with Brad that, you know, they're, they have, you both talk about, you know, they have their four stars, their five stars. That's always going to be the case. They're going to have more reserves than we've had starters, you know, in that category, but it is what it is until Colorado beats USC. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. If you're Lincoln Riley, the, you know, in retrospect, nobody thought about it. Nobody predicted it at the time, but it makes perfect sense. Would you rather play Alabama LSU, Texas, Texas A&M, and Auburn every year, or play Colorado, Arizona, Utah, and Arizona State every year. That's kind of a no-brainer if you want to try and get a national championship. It's a lot shorter distance. There's two or three games a year instead of you know seven or eight games a year that you have to compete in order to win a national championship at USC. So Hats off to the Trojans. I think it's going to be hard for Colorado and the rest of the Pac-12 to try and keep up, but we'll see what happens in the the upcoming years. Unfortunately, I wanted to talk about, you know, some of our retrospect favorite players, favorite games of the 2021 season, but we're kind of already bumping up against our, our limits here. So, Brad, any Thoughts about the 2021 season that you'd like to share at this point? I think that it was a season that sadly is what the the kind we've come to expect. I am not, however, among those who think that there was no hope. I think there were things that did improve and there are things that can improve. I will circle back and say my guy, Carson Wells, who despite disappointing me early came on late and, uh, you know, and that uh, the picture you highlighted of him sitting and looking at the empty stadium showed what kind of heart he had. So uh, he will be missed. Very good. Neil, any thoughts you'd like to pass along about the, the season? I'm thinking about the games later on in the season, late in the season that CU probably was not supposed to win, but did Oregon State and Washington. Those were probably the best moments of the entire year because it not only showed some competent play, but a great deal of heart and emotion by the players. And I thought those were very satisfying. It must have been great to be in the stadium during those games and watch those, watch that unfold. In terms of a player, I'm, Carson Wells is a great choice. And I think he's obviously the best. I'll, I'll go with someone maybe that on a lower plane, and that is our QB. This is sort of off the top of my head because if one is showing heart and determination and not getting much support and striving under difficult circumstances, that kid did it. So he'll be my pick. Okay. Well, and if you think back to the very first game, we were talking about how Brendan Lewis, you know, they weren't letting him 
run, letting him scramble because we had one quarterback and the fear was that he wasn't going to make it through the season. So we were like reining him in. And yet at the end of the season, he was running everywhere. And as you mentioned, he was getting beat up on pretty much every play because of poor offensive line play. So Brandon Lewis, definitely a good choice. Carson Wells, definitely a good choice. I think player that I, I remember, I, I think might've been my favorite, even though he wasn't in the limelight, it's partially because he's so good was Christian Gonzalez that he is going to be an NFL cornerback one day. And largely he didn't have any interceptions because most of the team stayed away from him. When Makai Blackman got hurt and things like that, they would go to the other side. And Kristen Gonzalez still was sixth on the team in tackles. He had five tackles for loss because every team did the same wide receiver screen five or six times a half. I think he is going to get some accolades next year. And I think he is going to be a professional player in the, you know, down the road wearing a, NFL colors as a as a CU graduate. I think my favorite, you, you alluded to the Oregon State game. Brad had to watch me suffer through the last minutes of that. That was definitely the agony and the ecstasy in the final minutes there where we watched Oregon State screw up, you know, not take a timeout to try and kick the tying field goal, miss the tying field goal with less than a minute to go, complete ecstasy that CU was going to win this game, then only to watch CU in the last minute find a way to have Oregon State kick a 60-yard field goal to tie the game. And all of a sudden it looked like, oh my God, we were going to end the season on a six or seven game losing streak. And this is just one of those, like the Oregon State game in 2018, we're finding new and creative ways to, to lose a football game, only to have the Oregon State kicker then miss a field goal and then Cole Becker in. Cole Becker should get some, and Josh Watts, little love for the special teams. Becker and Watts did their jobs this year. You don't get a lot of credit, you know, when you're a kicker and a punter, but when you screw up, everybody knows about it. But those two players had exceptional seasons. But, yeah, to win that Oregon State game, I think, was a lot of relief that we had, as you mentioned, Neil, something to build on for 2022. And I guess – that's as much as Buff Nation can hope for at this point is that when you have a four and eight season that you at least have some reasons for optimism and we'll get a new reason for optimism with the new offensive coordinator because we're all going to rally behind him, whoever it turns out to be. So I guess I get to have the last word this time, but I'll say uh, fairly well and study up on the class of 2022 because in a couple of weeks we're going to be talking about the the next 16 to 18 buffs they're going to be signing their letters of intent on Wednesday, the 15th of December. Brad, final word. Hopes the minute the last game is done, you have to start hoping for the next season. Okay. And Neil? I'm going to be curious about how the transfer portal goes. CU's most important recruiting is going to take place now with some of the guys already on campus trying to keep them. And that'll be the big development over the next two or three weeks. But in terms of a parting message, it's like, hang in there, Buff fans. I think there are some better days ahead, but it's going to be a bumpy ride. Okay, very good. Okay, well, we'll get the let the podcast listeners have an extra week off, and we'll talk again in two weeks. Thanks. 
Thanks, guys. Thanks, as always, for listening. It's going to be an active off-season for the University of Colorado football program, so I hope you'll stay with us both here on the podcasts and for daily updates on the See You at the Game website. In addition to changes in the coaching staff, there will be the inevitable turnover on the CU roster. Not only will we be welcoming in the recruiting class of 2022, but there will be additions and many subtractions by way of the transfer portal. I hope you'll be with us from now until next September 3rd, when the Buffs take on the Horned Frogs of TCU at Folsom Field. So until next time, when we will break down the news of signing day, be well, stay safe, and go Buffs! Thank you for listening to our See You at the Game podcast. For links to articles and stories referenced in this podcast, go to cuatthegame.com. That's the letter C, the letter U, at thegame.com. If you have comments or suggestions, you can leave them on the website or send an email to cuatthegame at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and share it with your fellow Buff fans. Until next time, when we will again see you at the game. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.